BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. This week's guest, Greg Rose, a uh, self-described risk-averse jumper, uh, who gives a lot of different insights, not only about uh, how he thinks about jumping, but also about how you can look backwards before you look forwards. And, uh, and, and a little bit of a, of a sneak peek teaser here. If you're worried about not being qualified for a job when you see a job description, Greg actually spent a lot of his time writing job descriptions and will give you a little bit of a hint on uh, how to interpret what you see. So all that and more, a big discussion on food and even on water as well, uh, and how they all relate to taking a jump. All that and more in this week's conversation with Greg Rose on the When to Jump podcast. Greg Rose, welcome to the When to Jump podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. So we have, uh, before going on air, talked quite a bit about this idea of taking a jump and doing something differently. I want to get right into it because you are, you're a smart fellow. And, uh, you know, how, how do you approach this decision of taking a risk and going off the path? How do you even think about it um, from the highest of levels? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. So uh, I should start by saying I, I consider myself a pretty risk-averse person. So for me... I find this topic really interesting. Like, how do you take a jump in a way that feels feels authentic, feels purposeful, but feels like a risk that works for you? In terms of how I think about jumps, um, the the thing that comes to mind is when I was leaving uh, my job as a consultant, was working as a management consultant in New York, and you know, just I kind of hit this point where I felt like I was climbing a ladder, and and I wasn't really sure if where it was taking me was necessarily where I wanted to be, or at least like what would, was going to feel most fulfilling to me. Um, and I had this moment where I kind of asked myself the question of if, if money didn't matter, if status didn't matter, you know, how would I want to spend my time and, and what kind of people would I want to spend that time with? And so that was kind of like just the first order thought of, you know, what does risk taking mean to me? Where do I want to be? Um, and so the two the two things that came to mind for me were uh, first and foremost my my passion around food. Um, I've always really enjoyed cooking, um, love to eat out, love to explore different restaurants, especially at home in New York. And so doing something around food felt like it could be pretty exciting and something completely different from you know working in finance, working in consulting as I had been previously. And the other was something around um, languages and travel. Again, something both things that. I've invested time in just for fun. Um, never really thought about creating a career around foreign language proficiency or creating a career around travel, but um, also things that came to mind. But you know, again, to answer that question, it, it was the, the first the first thought that came to mind was what feels fulfilling or what feels fun before you layer on all the things like responsibilities, paying the bills, et cetera. As a as a risk averse person, can that type of person take a jump? Like, is what does it take 
to to make something that's that's not not you know that's not easy to justify or to analyze or put you know numbers against and yeah. things like that. Yeah, I, I think um, it's important to know what the downside is. So when I was when I was leaving my previous role, um, one thing that's worth noting is that I did have the or still kind of have the opportunity to go back to that job. Like a lot of the big consulting firms will often offer their analysts a chance to go and do something for anywhere from two to four or five years, and you can go back and kind of continue back on the track that you're on. Um, so that definitely made taking a risk a lot easier. Um, but I think just in general, for, for people who don't have opportunities like that, just being very explicit about, okay, like, what's the worst that could happen if I take this jump? Um, and how do I kind of guard against that can, can be really powerful. So to give a few examples, um, when I was looking into jobs in the food industry, um, one thing that became immediately clear to me is that it's, it's kind of difficult to make the transition from working in a kind of a corporate office-based role into working with professional chefs or working in kitchens. Most people, if they go into that industry, will either come from culinary school or um, will kind of start out kind of low on the totem pole and work their way up. And so I knew that if I, if I were to, to try to find a job in the food space, I'd likely have to spend at least a few years kind of um, developing credibility, um, developing my chops, et cetera. And as I was going through the search for, for finding jobs in food, I interviewed with, um, you know, jobs in the uh, cruise line industry and hospitality. Um, I remember I spoke to a couple of people that ran restaurant management companies in New York. Um, I spoke to a couple of professional chefs, uh, people that had left consulting and gone to culinary school. And just having that wide range of conversations made it clear to me, um, one, that someone with my kind of loose amalgamation of skills um, would be able to find a job somewhere. And so it, it made me feel a little bit more confident that if I were to take a jump, I wouldn't end up unemployed, you know, at the, at the very worst. So that gave me a little bit more confidence. Um, the other was realizing that it, it can be easy to kind of psych yourself out of pursuing a new job because you think that they, that job requires a very specific set of skills that you don't have. And having a conversation with such a wide range of people whose industries were completely unlike mine made me realize how often people are just looking for folks that they enjoy talking with, enjoy spending time with, people they feel like they can trust. And I think when you're, when you're considering career pivots, it can be really easy to underestimate the human element. In other words, how can you demonstrate that you're someone who's going to be interesting to work with beyond the whatever you know, technical skills that you're bringing to the role? But it really took having those conversations and spending time kind of putting myself out there to realize that people really are looking for someone who's interesting and interested, um, not just someone who like checks all the traditional boxes. I love that, though. It's a great way to think of it. In interesting and who's interested. I, I think we do psych ourselves out. If you read a job description, you can easily find somewhere where it's a weak link for you or, or you're not going to fit, right? Right, 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 right. And, you know, it's funny, too, having so fast forwarding a little bit. I ended up um, I left the country for for a few months to, to work at a family owned hotel in Spain, an amazing experience. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, just before leaving the country run into um, someone that I knew from college who was working um, at Blue Apron um, meal delivery kit company that's based in New York. And um, long story short, she was able to introduce me to a few folks there and um, ended up spending the last uh, three years there. Really, really enjoyed working there, uh, working with professional chefs, you know, really changing or trying to change the way that people think and engage with food at home here in the U.S. And while there, I wrote quite a few job descriptions because I was hiring lots of different folks 
you know, we were hiring for um, a director of nutrition and, and a few other roles that really do require certain skill sets. And it's it's so funny that when you're when you're writing a job description, often you don't know exactly what to put. So I would look online at job descriptions for similar roles and kind of write the job description based on that. So I'm, I'm sure that job descriptions, probably 75% of them are just people kind of regurgitating what they think job descriptions are supposed to look like. Um, a lot of the job descriptions for um, for roles at Blue Apron, for instance, often reference you know two to three years of consulting or two to three years of venture capital experience uh, preferred. And the reality is that most people didn't have that experience, but it was just kind of like the tagline that you use. Um, so now I know that when I look at jobs and they're they're looking for you know two or three years of investing experience, et cetera, that like there's probably some wiggle room around that. I think that's the best kept secret you just shared with our audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Def- definitely practice healthy skepticism around job descriptions. It's also important to note this is not one long Blue Apron commercial. Yes, for not at all. Podcast. Not at all. Although folks should try it if they haven't. Exactly. There's probably <laughs> some code we could give them. Uh, but that is, uh, it, it reminds me of this, I think it's a Steve Job quote or something that I, I should probably look up the exact, the person who said it, but it's like, once you realize that all of these systems, quote unquote, and processes, whether it's in a company or like getting a job, were just made by people, it's like you can trace it back to someone Googling around online. And I hope that hits home with people because it should. Like it isn't all, you know, nailed down or carved in stone that you need X years of this or Y years of this. In fact, if there's people out there who have other funny stories about this topic, I'd love to hear it because I... I, I don't I don't know if I've met anyone who would say they were perfectly suited for the role they were hired for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly wasn't the case for me. I was coming from um, again a few years working in finance, a few years working in management consulting. Had just come off of five months in in Spain working at a hotel and kind of a internal consulting advisor to the hotel director type role, and was applying to work at a food company with a team of professional chefs to kind of analyze quote unquote business problems. So the the job that I was stepping into was vague. My background probably wasn't the most intuitive fit, but um, I had spent a ton of time reading about the company. I, I was kind of in the process of exploring this whole interest in food, as I mentioned before. Um, so I could have talked anyone's ear off about why I was interested in working in food, why I was interested in working with chefs, why I was willing to put in the effort, you know, kind of go the extra mile especially given that I didn't have a, a background or any kind of formal training in food. And I think that that level of enthusiasm and that level of interest and, and being proactive and acknowledging where I didn't quite check the boxes um, probably went a long way. That's such a, uh, I think that aligns too with like, okay, well, how do you get the job if you're not qualified? It's I, Maybe it's too simple to say you have to have the passion, but it sounds like you really developed this interest in food and you could talk your way at least to get that first interview and to say, hey, I'll, I'll learn what I don't know, which I feel like is the key to any of this. Absolutely. And, and that also brings to mind, um, going back to your original question around how do, you, how do you kind of overcome that hurdle of taking a risk as a risk-averse person? One of the first things I did was I reached out to a few people who worked at the same firm where I was working who were actively working in the food industry. One guy that was incredibly helpful um, he had left the firm and had started a delivery-only restaurant in New York. Um, so he had made kind of that similar jump from professional services into, into food and beverage. And, you know, my question to him was, hey, you know, I'm someone who's interested in food, don't really have a background. Is there anyone that you might be comfortable introducing me to? 
And his response was, yeah, no problem. And the first thing that he did was uh, shot out emails to friends that he had at probably what would be considered the top five or six restaurants in New York City, like triple Michelin star, you know, hot cuisine type places. And his question to them was, hey, I have a friend. He's exploring careers in food. Would you guys be willing to show him around your kitchens and kind of show him how things are done just as he educates himself? And I was shocked how many people responded in the affirmative. Um, got to spend a, a day in the kitchen at La Berna Den, which uh, for, for those who don't know is is considered one of the probably the best seafood restaurants in New York City, um, run by a chef named Eric Repair from France. And, you know, here I was spending 24 or 12 hours, uh, a full shift in a in a professional kitchen, probably week two of my search, week three of my search. And that was just because I reached out to someone who could empathize with with me in the position that I was in, had some connections in the industry and had already kind of forged a path, so to speak. Um, so I think the lesson there for me was to, to kind of not necessarily think of the jump of, of how do I get from zero to 10 immediately, but how do I get from zero to two? Who can help me get there? And then how do I get from two to four and kind of make my way to whatever my, my end goal is or intermediate goal at the time? Do you have to have the, I think maybe to push on this, do you have to have your resume, all the success that you had before? Do you have to know that that person or can you do it for, you know, can anyone follow those I think I think it's something that anyone can follow and and you know in certain contexts I think pedigree can definitely help but I think the more important thing is to find someone with whom you share some piece of background so I think had I found someone for instance that also grew up in New York City or um, you know my family is from the Caribbean uh, my, my both my parents and my sisters are were born in Jamaica um, had I found someone that was a Caribbean American who was working in the food industry I think they would have been equally as inclined to be helpful because ultimately I think it's important to find someone who can just empathize with, you know, here's Mike, Mike's coming from um, investing and is looking to, to play professional sports. I remember when I was working in a job that was, um, you know, a little bit square around the edges and, um, you know, I was looking to make my entry into sports. There's someone who, who part of their biography and part of their history um, mirrors yours a little bit. I think that's probably the most important piece. Yeah, that's exactly right. Then you, you just find that uh, the uh, the association or, or the identification of, of some sort of thread, and then you pull on it and see yeah. where it goes. Yeah. And we call it kind of sewing the safety net. Uh, you know, it's yeah. like, where can you find, you know, uh, okay, like this person knows this person. You, you create a little bit of like a, of a, of a cushion that way. Exactly. Exactly. So going into food, what is it about food that, that you touched on it earlier? I feel like the people I know who are into food are really into food. You've described being willing and actually excited about spending like a full Saturday prepping a meal for eight people. Yeah. What, what is it that food delivers to you? Yeah, the, there's a few things. I think one for, for me, food is by far about people. And um, I think there are, there are few ways to really convey to people that you care about how much you care about them um, than putting the the effort and the attention and love into preparing a meal. Um, food is something that we all need and um, can, can easily be very transactional in a way. You could make a sandwich for someone or you can prepare a meal for someone, go buy the ingredients, 
measure things out, prepare them, you know, you're calibrating temperature, you're cal calibrating portions. Um, I think there's a, quite a bit of thoughtfulness that goes into a meal. And when you're able to present that finished product to someone and just kind of see the way their face lights up with excitement, with anticipation, with gratitude, um, to me, it's something that's, that's incredibly moving and incredibly powerful. Um, as far as what I get out of cooking and get out of food personally, um, food is just an incredible way to, to explore and to explore cultures. Um, you know, all it takes is running to a local library or um, if you're able to, running to a local bookstore and picking up a cookbook. And, you know, within a few pages or a few chapters, you're learning a lot about um, a country's history, about its topography, its geography, um, what types of ingredients um, either are, are indigenous to that country um, or what types of flavors are really popular in that country's cuisine. Um, and so for me, cooking is a way to kind of explore the world as well and to be able to share parts of the world with someone who may not necessarily visit that, that country. So if I prepare, you know, paella for us to eat, you may, may not be particularly interested in going to Spain, but I've brought, brought a little bit of Spain to you. Um, so I think there's something that's inherently kind of global and international about it. Um, and then also the, the last piece would be creativity. Um, cooking is inherently about kind of either taking a standard approach to doing things or kind of a standard formula and playing with it on the edges a little bit. You know, you can, um, in a dish that's meant to have moderate heat, you can dial up the heat a little bit and see how that works. Um, you can swap ingredients in and out. And so that, that kind of um, creative element to it, I think of it as like um, painting, but with a plate and you can eat the final, final um, output. Um, it's just a lot of fun as well. And is there something in this day and age about cooking, especially the process, the labor? And I, I, I don't want to force the link if there isn't one, but I feel like we talk a lot about like being mindful and closing your eyes and meditating and going for a walk or like being in silence. Is there something someone could get? And I'm sure there are people that cook that listen to the show. Uh, but is there a link between like that you found um, between like maybe being able to to take a step back or um, think about the jumps you want to take or fuel up for kind of that next move by forcing yourself to kind of get dirty with your hands and be in a kitchen or is that is there no connection no i think i think you, you touched in a way there's something about um using your hands and and in, in some ways also just being on your feet that i think is inherently energizing um, and kind of thought-provoking. Not Now, not everyone loves to cook. In fact, I know quite a few people who, who abhor it or would much rather pay someone to cook for them, but um, if, if they could. But uh, I do think that there, there's something, um, you know, you asked about in this day and age where, you know, we're almost constantly connected um, on our phones, on our computers, um, tied to media, checking the news, checking a blog, um, and there's something, at least for me, about cooking that kind of forces you to hit pause and all those things and, and be very present in what you're doing. Um, I think that, we've, that we're losing in some ways activities that really force us to engage with our hands. Um, you know, we, we just went on a trip and it was really great to be in the outdoors, do a little hiking, go to the beach and kind of like feel sand between your fingers. Um, I think when you're, when you're behind a desk or when you're... Um, using a computer or constantly on your phone, the, the services that you're touching kind of lose that variety of texture. And I think in that loss of texture, you kind of lose that um, sense of exploration, that sense of being out there. So I think that there's something about cooking and there's something again about, about using your hands, being on your feet, moving between the stove and the sink and the refrigerator that um, 
kind of reminds one can be a reminder of what it's like to be in motion um but to a reminder of what it's like to kind of like really be engaged with your body and engaged with your mind at the same time that's similar to something else that i know i think is near and dear to both of our hearts which is being in and around water and we can talk about that but i feel very much when people actually i believe it was a question you posed the other day or uh you said when are you at your most happy what is the best feeling possible what are you doing and my reaction was it's when i'm able to like plunge under preferably cold but a body of water and because it makes me feel so alive and i think there is something you just described in cooking which you can do a lot easier uh, than finding a body of water every day uh, to kind of take that time right yeah and and um you know there's something about learning something new you know for especially for people who didn't necessarily grow up cooking um i think the act of learning a new skill or even if it's just learning one recipe um, can be incredibly motivating, um, especially if you feel, um, you know, from a, let's say from a career or life standpoint that you're kind of stuck in a rut or that things have become kind of routine. Um, cooking can be an incredible way to, to introduce variety. So just, just a quick plug for cooking there. But um, going back to what you were saying about kind of that feeling of, of feeling alive, like I think that that is something that I was looking for when I was making, um, looking to make my jump. Like I, I felt that um, I was kind of on autopilot, um, you know, had an incredible job, um, earning a really, really great salary, and I just didn't feel fully alive, or, or at least I didn't fully feel like myself, if that isn't too woo-woo. Like, I just, I didn't feel like I was living the me that I wanted to live, where I felt like kind of like the most true manifestation of myself and the most lively manifestation of myself. and so. Um, that's part of why I asked that question, um, because I think it's really easy to not pause and, and ask ourselves, like, what, what are those things that make me feel really alive? Or what are those moments where I feel um, engaged, fulfilled, energized, excited, um, you know, mind racing kind of kind of excitement? Um, and it can be really easy to kind of, in, in the pursuit of stability and, and in the pursuit of security, both of which are really important, to either to sacrifice those feelings consciously or otherwise yeah i think that that's right do you feel like that's a pretty big burden to put on yourself i mean i guess that goes back to why people don't or a reason why people don't jump is that you don't feel totally like yourself or fully alive or fully alive as yourself you know do you have this fear of well what if i never find that like what if that thing doesn't exist that allows me to feel myself yeah no, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a fear that I feel and, and was part of what pushed me to kind of go on that multi-month journey um, of career exploration. Um, and in some ways, I'm still kind of answering that question now. Like, how do I not just make a vacation or a, or a brief kind of foray out of, out of pursuing that feeling, but how do I kind of create a new normal in some ways uh, that's built around those feelings of fulfillment? But it's scary. It's, it's definitely scary to, to think that, okay, you know, I'm, I'm at this point in my life and I haven't quite found that thing yet, what if I never do? And especially if you feel like you're you're surrounded by or at least know people who have seemed to kind of crack that code or have seemed to tap into something that for them is both a, um, a vocation and a, a source of inspiration, it, it, it can feel in, in intimidating and scary to think, oh man, like what, what if I don't get there? And um, What would that look like? And, and will I just kind of be one of those people that's just kind of waking up, living, going to sleep, and then hitting, you know, repeating every day. And how do you answer that? Because I think that's a fear many of us have, right? Yeah. How do you and how do you tackle that 
or at least get to peace with that so that you can try to keep looking and moving towards that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going through the process of answering that question right now. Um, I unfortunately don't, don't have an answer just yet. I think what, what has consistently been, um, I think, part of a solution is to talk to people about it and to first and foremost kind of kind of demystify this 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 myth that everyone everyone else is happy or everyone else has figured it out. I find that the more that I speak with people, the more that I realize that more people than I would have thought feel very similarly and, and that kind of lowers um, lowers the bar a little bit. But I also find that in talking to people, one, there's something about talking through the things that I find interesting and having close friends react to it that helps me clarify my own thinking and helps me kind of crystallize exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, because until until you have some concrete goal, it's really hard to pursue it. I think it's really hard to just pursue a feeling. It's much more easy to pursue, um, you know, a specific opportunity or a specific setting that you're trying to get exposed to. Um, and so I find that like getting advice and reactions from friends can, has been helpful in, in crystallizing my thinking. But then also I think it's it's just helpful to to, to talk about it in general. You know, we one of the things that um, we've learned over the last couple of months is. Uh, the importance of, of writing down goals and, and also writing down your fears. You know, what are the things that you're afraid of? What are the things that intimidate you? What are things that feel like obstacles? And, and being very specific about those things so that you can then come up with a plan for how to get past or how to overcome them. Because otherwise, it's way too easy for those, those um, negatives or those sources of intimidation to just kind of linger as ideas. Um, it's really hard to react to or, or, or solve ideas. Totally. I think then that's a great step. Maybe that's something we we can leave with listeners is like that would be a fun you know game almost. What are the three things you're most scared of? Like write those down, and then what are you going to do about it? Like yeah. this week or next week or or this month, right? Like especially as you start the new year, I think we talk about things we're going to go do and things about you know all these goals. But instead, it's like well, what are the things that scare you? You know how you how do you get better at those things? A lot of the time, I think it's just the unknown, right? It's like you don't know how what exactly that fear is or how you'd actually solve it but once you put you know we've talked a lot about pen to paper once you start putting that down it like you know kind of turns the light on a little bit to these things yeah something i was reading about uh, new year's resolutions the other day i think this is this comes from uh, tim ferris who you and i have talked about a little bit i'm a huge fan of his uh his blog um and his podcast um i think he wrote recently in, in his blog that rather than focus on new year's resolutions i think he tries to do new year's reflections um, and so he'll look back at the last year and kind of like either go through his calendar or something that's able to kind of jog his memory about how he spent particular days or particular weeks over the year. And he'll create two columns, um, one that's positives and one that's negatives, uh, and try to kind of reflect on what were the moments that I felt excited, felt alive, felt fulfilled, and what were the moments that I felt drained of energy, uh, really negative about myself, um, negative in general. Um, moments of conflict, et cetera, and, and trying to kind of more clearly identify what those things are so that he can then bring a, a better sense of intentionality into the new year and, and try to put invest more time and more stock into that, that first column of positives and to the extent possible, try to mitigate the negatives. Because I do think that the new years and, and, and this time of year makes it very tempting to, to be purely optimistic and say, I'm going to go do these three things. Nothing's going to stop me. Um, then come mid-February you know, you're, you kind of lose momentum. But I think if you can identify, like, what are those things I'm already doing, whether or not consciously that bring me energy and how do I do more of them? 
and then what are those things that that make me feel um, a little bit more negative and and how do I mitigate them or at least put a lid on them I think that that can help people achieve um, those those same goals or at least it's the same spirit of goals I love that yeah I usually used to do intentions for the year but I think looking back a bit and we've done this in our on our online class where we ask people to do these time audits of like how am I how am I spending my time and what could I, you know, when you write all that stuff down, you actually see, you know, that can actually shed some light on some of these things that you're thinking about. Like, oh, like I want to get to bed earlier, but the last two hours are usually useless, right? Like, or whatever. But I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a very nice bite-sized piece. Uh, as we wrap up here, Greg, is there anything, you know, you're a very obviously thoughtful um kind of reflector on this subject what what would you tell others that you found most most interesting from from the time you've spent kind of wrestling with your next jump and and how you think of that as a risk averse jumper you know finding that thing and 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 still on that journey what would you tell others yeah i think so much of so much of jumping and so much of of navigating big life transitions is i think just how we're feeling and that sounds kind of vague, but by that I mean like, how how confident am I feeling? How safe am I feeling? Um, and and for me, I, I found it very important to identify like, what does it take for me to feel confident or to feel safe? Um, you know, is that is that a mental health thing? Like, do I need to make sure that I'm sleeping enough? That I'm surrounding myself with friends enough? That I'm um, exercising enough? Is it a nutrition thing? Is it a income thing like do I do I need a certain amount of income to feel safe and to feel confident that if I make a jump I'll still be able to, to cover my immediate needs and I think that going back to the last topic that we were talking about in terms of identifying risk points or identifying points of negativity and, and being able to mitigate them I think knowing what are those things that you need to feel to feel safe and to feel confident and to feel like you have a, a stable platform to, to make that jump from is something that I've been spending a lot of time reflecting on and, and making sure that I've identified and, and kind of to the extent that I can fulfill those immediate needs so then I can I have I have a platform to take the risks from because if you haven't taken that first step um, it, it's that much harder and that much more intimidating to, to take a big risk amazing what, what a way to turn the Turn the idea of, of a where you're jumping to on its head to kind of say, okay, well, what am I doing right now? And right. What, how has it been? And where am I going from here? Exactly. Greg Rose, thank you so much for joining me on the When to Jump podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Greg. As you know, if you've got a story or a favorite recipe relating to food and jumping or any ideas or thoughts or even just you know comments on that discussion, uh, particularly around as we start the new year and, and the reflections that we described, looking backwards to look forwards as you plan your jump, uh, would love to hear it. WhenToJump.com, send us a message. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners near and far. Uh, a lot to... Uh, a lot to digest here. That was a really, a really thoughtful conversation, and I hope everyone got something out of that as well. Um, I certainly did. That will do it for us. WhenToJump.com, at WhenToJump on social media. Sign up for our newsletter on WhenToJump.com. DM us, comment, like, tag, follow, all that good stuff. Most importantly, stay tuned. My name is Mike Lewis, and I will see you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.